Hi, this is Julian here, uh, the producer of the Dublin Story Slam. We are about to bring you highlights from our Grand Slam recorded last year in December at the Abbey Theatre and hosted by the wonderful Kerry Ward. But before we get to that, just a quick message to let you know, in case you didn't hear, we've had to postpone our very first Spring Grand Slam which was due to take place on March the 16th as part of the Patrick's Festival. Uh, We were absolutely gutted to make this decision because all the storytellers have been working so hard on their stories and this year's Grand Slam promised to be one of our best yet. But we'll just have to take out the marker and scribble out Spring Grand Slam and instead fill in Summer Grand Slam because we will definitely be back this summer with all of those stories inspired by the theme Precious. And I think what everybody, including the world, is going through at the moment, people are starting to realise what the most precious thing in this life, and I suppose it's our health. So with that in mind, we have decided to postpone um, this year's Grand Slam in light of COVID-19. This also means there will be no story slams until we know exactly what's going on and things have calmed down. Myself and Colm are going to have a little emergency meeting and see what exactly can we do in case we have to move everything online and we are going to continue to share our stories that we've been recording uh, at the Story Slams here on the podcast for the next while. So no matter what happens, we promise you lots and lots of wonderful stories to listen to. Okay, so that's my message. We're going to cut now to Kerry Ward. This is... The Dublin Story Grand Slam Radio Special 2019, Part 2. Now, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for our first storyteller of the second half? We're all in the room. You're listening to Part 2 of a programme featuring highlights from the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019, recorded live at the Abbey Theatre in December. We're fully here, excellent, good. The Dublin Story Slam is an open mic storytelling night where ordinary people come together to share true personal stories inspired by a different theme each night. And next thing, he whips out my letter. And he's after a few whiskeys now, thinking he's a gas bastard reading it. And she looked at me like I was something that was inside her shoe on a hot day. She was great at keeping things. Like, our guest often was 62 years old, which was longer than she had my dad. <laughs> Stories can be funny or sad, shocking or moving, but most importantly, they're always true. I wanted to love her, but I couldn't because she was too much like me. So that was hard. I'm Kerry Ward, and as a previous winner of the Grand Slam, I know just how hard you need to work to get your story ready for the Abbey stage. This is bringing an Irish tradition of storytelling into a whole new realm. This is Aoife Brady from the Abbey. Aoife has worked with the Dublin Story Slam every year since it began to create a series of shows that are like no other. It's a lovely event to be in as an audience member because somebody is telling you something so personal, which can often be quite tragic and difficult but maybe tinged with the old bit of Irish humour so they don't know what the person before them is going to say is it going to be something comedic is it going to be something heartbreaking and it is a one-off that story will never be told again if you're not there to experience it it's not going to be remounted in a few weeks time so there's a buzz in the air because you don't know what's about to come out in front of you and I think it's the same for the audience as for the performers themselves. On the night of the Grand Slam, eight winners from the Dublin Story Slam were invited back to share more personal and true stories, inspired by a brand new theme. In 2019, that theme was The Decision. In part one of the programme, we heard the remarkable first half of the Grand Slam, with stories from Andrea Farrell. Then the alarm went off again. This time both alarms going off. So there was a fire and we were getting burgled, but I hadn't located either. Mark Early. And slowly we fell in love. We started doing things again that we'd done with previous partners and it was difficult, but that love overcame a lot of obstacles. Michael Lavin. 
if I, I stay the way I am, I have enough sight for a while. If I go for an, the corneograph, the chances are I could get a good bit of sight back. But the other side of it is I could be completely blind. And Sinead Nolan. I had a decision, you know, and the decision that I had was to to move home and I was feeling like God I'm so lucky actually to have that because so many people don't you know they don't have that option Over this next hour we're going to bring you four more stories from the night before our host of the evening Colm O'Regan reveals the winner of the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019 So we have a winner When I won the Grand Slam in 2018 The prize was an annual pass to the Story Slam for me and five lucky friends. A full year of hearing true, personal stories can teach you an awful lot about storytelling and why it moves people the way it does. So, Colm and Julian, you've been working together on the Dublin Story Slam since it all began in 2017. Colm, you're the host. Julian, you're the producer. What do you think keeps people coming back? What appeals to people so much about these stories? I think originally when people started coming to the uh, Dublin Story Slam, they didn't really know what to expect. Uh, Some people were coming just to hear a story, to to be entertained, to have a laugh, a night out. Um, But I think it's evolved into something that neither myself or Colm could ever, ever have imagined. And that's this amazing community. But... It feels bigger than just a community. We operate these days mostly through social media. People connect to each other online more than they're connecting to each other in person. And the Dublin Story Slam kind of shows that when you get up there and bare your soul to a group of strangers, if it was the online world, it could be a really negative and potential negative experience. But with the Story Slam, it's nothing but warmth and love and respect uh, and, and, and the attention that they give and nobody judges anybody everybody just gets up and some people will pat you on the back afterwards and say I know what you what you went through because they went through that experience themselves so I think it's it's I don't know Colin what do you think it's, it's gotten bigger than, than, than just you know even a community Also it provides maybe a particular type of catharsis for people that isn't therapy necessarily like there are people tell difficult stories but they're not wallowing they are belting out in a matter-of-fact way. These are the things that happened to me. They were tough. I'm clearly here, so I've, I've gone through them, and I'm still dealing with the consequences or dealing with the effects, but I'm in the room. I'm up for it. it, it just, you could just see them as like a little vitamin for them uh, as, they, uh, as they tell that difficult story. And, you know, we're not professionals, <laughs> but we like to give people that venue to just say look this weird sad mad bad funny thing happened to me what do you make of this and what the audience make of it often gives a little bit of relief light relief and sometimes just that welcoming arm around the shoulder to the storyteller And so we arrive at the second half of the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019. Our first storyteller of the second half of the Dublin Story Grand Slam was Mary Kate O'Flanagan. I've been completely obsessed with story for as long as I can remember. And uh, I was a journalist for a while, but I found my way into the story end of television and film. So I work as a story editor, a story consultant, script midwife, my sister Rachel likes to call us. Mary Kate is a screenwriter and no stranger to storytelling on stage. She's won two storytelling Grand Slams before, both run by The Moth, one of the biggest storytelling organisations in the world. Her first win was in Dublin and her second was in LA, where she often works. Winning at home in Dublin, however, held a special thrill. I would say for me it was life-changing because, you know, you have some successes and a lot of rejection when you choose a professional life in the arts in any way. Um, So to be like, hmm... I was the Grand Slam champion storyteller at the Abbey. That was a really big deal for me. Mary Kate's story for this year's Dublin Story Grand Slam was a deeply personal one. Her story allowed her to explore the many emotions she experienced 
when a very close friend died suddenly. It was probably the most profound thing that happened to me this year. So there was always a chance that it was going to come up, that it was going to be in the forefront of my mind. But I was hesitating because my friend was a father of five and I was anxious that I might be appropriating it for the purpose of the story slam and I didn't want to do that but I got in touch with them and his wife Suzanne said Barry doesn't belong to us and we don't want it that people would feel like we mustn't they mustn't speak his name we want his name to be spoken but I knew then the generosity of their response meant that this was the story to be told that I was committed then that this was the right one to tell. So earlier this year, I was in one of the most beautiful places on God's green earth, Yosemite Valley in California. And I was with one of my favorite people on God's green earth, my nephew Joe. And this should be my idea of heaven, but it's completely marred by the fact that all I can think is, why is there no phone signal in the wilderness? And this is not because I'm a spoiled technology addicted product of the 21st century. It's not only because I'm a spoiled technology addict product of the 21st century, it's because just as Joe and I set off from Los Angeles, I got a call from Ireland to tell me that my friend Barry Henry had died. And my friends and I aren't that young anymore, but neither are we at the age where we expect to hear that somebody healthy's heart has just stopped. And I have no idea what's going on on the other side of the world. And I'm looking at my Joe, he's there, 18, going on 19. And I'm thinking, that's exactly the age Barry and I were when we met. And I first met Barry Henry because he's my friend Caroline's brother. And he was really cool. He had rooms in Trinity and he ran the cathedral club. And I thought that meant I had rooms in Trinity and a lifetime free pass to the cathedral club. But that friendship really deepened when we all emigrated to London together after college. And Barry became the heart of this close-knit group of friends. It was a role he took very seriously. He rang me up one time to admonish me for my insufficient levels of commitment to the group because I had missed three weekends in a row of meeting up with my Irish friends. And he said to me, Mary-Kate, while we're here in England, away from our families, we're each other's family. And when you're part of a family, you show up. Do you hear me? You show up for your family gatherings. But I took his lecture on loyalty to heart, and as a result of that, I have friends from that part of my life who would cross oceans for me if I needed them. And it was Barry who found me 10 years later, shedding a little tear for myself at my leaving London do. And he said, why are you crying? You're doing what we all want to do. You're going home. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm crying because I'll miss you, Barry. And he said, you don't need to miss me. I'll be following you really soon. And he did. And I'm there in Yosemite thinking of the thousands of ways in which this friendship shaped me. And I just decide, I can't stay here. I have to get home. So we get back to the hotel that night and there's very spotty Wi-Fi in the lobby of the hotel. The most I can do is get through to my sister's WhatsApp group and I'm wailing to them that I can't get, on, get online long enough to change my flights. And my sisters just go, leave it to us. And my sister Rebecca calls me back an hour later and she goes, you're booked on a flight from LAX that will get you home just in time for the removal. Just get yourself to the airport. So I pack Joe in the car and we drive hell for leather down the interstate nine hours as fast as we can go. And I get Joe on a plane back to his dad in New Mexico and I get on a plane to Dublin. And when I get on the plane and I have a minute to look at my phone, the one message I want to look at is the last message that I ever got from Barry. And it's a lovely message that says, hey, I was looking at some old photos and I came across this one. I thought it was just fantastic. And I wanted to share it with you. And he sent me a photograph of me and his father, the late Michael Henry, at his wedding. And Michael and I are just looking at each other with absolute delight. And I think, well, Barry's with Michael now. And then I think, wow, Barry would really hate that. <laughs> because among many of the robust exchanges of views that we had were that we disagreed on spirituality. And Barry would say to me, you're an intelligent woman. How can you believe in God and heaven and hell and all that nonsense? 
And I say, well, I don't believe in hell, and I don't believe in God as a judgmental alfella, but I think we all came from something, and we all returned to something. And he'd go, worse yet, not even the rigor of an intellectual framework. <laughs> And I said to him, you know what, Barry, why don't we have this argument after we're both dead and we have more information? Because it's really <laughs> pointless having this now. <laughs> and then I said, hey, Barry, Barry, imagine when you get to the pearly gates, the first thing you're going to see is me sitting on a cloud with my harp and a big old I told you so look on my face. <laughs> and he said, yeah, that's not how I will know that heaven is real, Mary-Kate. <laughs> But the plane landed in Dublin, and I made my way across the city to Barry's house just an hour before the removal ended, and the first thing I see is his sister, Caroline, and when she turns and sees me, she falls into my arms, and there is no consoling the inconsolable, but you do just what my friend told me to do. You show up, you show up, and it was my honor to be among the hundreds of people that showed up to mourn the passing of the great Barry Henry. But it was a shattering experience, more than I could have believed. And for months afterwards, the thought that keeps coming back to me is, I don't know what the point of anything is, because we're all just going to die anyway. And one night I go to sleep thinking of him and shedding a tear, and I dreamt of him. And in the dream, I was just like, oh, hiya, how are you? And uh, I said, oh, I was just up at the house. I saw Suzanne and your children. The house is looking great. They gave me a lovely welcome. And he said, did you remember to say thank you? And I said, really? You're schooling me on my manners? But when I woke up, I thought, that's the only thing he said to me. Did you remember to say thank you? And of course, of course I know that it could have just been my subconscious because I'd gone to sleep thinking about him. But faith is a decision too. And so I've decided to believe that whatever my friend was then, he is now and ever shall be. And that really was him coming to me with one more bit of guidance. And he never steered me wrong yet. So although I miss him because I loved him in his human form, I'll just remember to say thank you until I see his face again when it's my turn to follow him. And so, yes, I say thank you. I say thank you for stalwart sisters who are terrific friends and for friends like Caroline who are like sisters to me. Thank you for a nephew who would spend even five minutes with me, never mind five days in the wilderness. Thank you for every morning that I wake up a little bit older. It's a gift that's not given to everyone. And thank you for platonic love and a beautiful friendship with a kind and generous man that has lasted for 30 years and counting, apparently. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Mary Kate O'Flanagan there sharing her beautiful story at the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019. As we mentioned in part one, scores are given at the end of each story, but we won't be revealing the winner of the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019 until the very end of the programme. Our next storyteller, Bobby Buckley, is originally from Mallow in County Cork. Like Mary Kate, he first got his love of storytelling from his family. Especially uh, my mother constantly told stories. She would always come back every day after a visit up the town and she would have all the local gossip and then that would be all developed into stories. So in a sense, I suppose, like many Irish people, uh, we all listen to our mothers telling stories. So we develop, I suppose, a skill of some kind of telling stories. Bobby definitely inherited that skill from his mother. At his first story slam, he had the audience at the edge of their seats with an enthralling story of battling monster spiders in a kitchen in Australia. I confronted a huntsman. He ran down the lintel of the door, down my naked leg. I was wearing shorts. I luckily won that night and uh, I'm told that I would appear in the abbey. 
So this is a wonderful thing for me to appear on the same stage as Yeats and Casey and at this stage of my life in my mid-70s I look upon this as a, a kind of a gift that here I am uh, speaking on the Abbey stage something I never dreamed that would ever happen to me. It is like grace of some kind and I'm going to enjoy every moment of it. Well, this story is about something that is very much part, the very fibre of my life, because it's about running. And running is always a feature, has always been a feature in my life. And anybody who goes out running every day will understand the very atmosphere and the feelings of the people that are in this story. The early 1960s, when I was an adolescent, a surly adolescent, I can hear some of you thinking. (laughs) No, never. My parents were like my servants. (laughs) My mother to cook a steak for me every day and my father to rub me down with olive oil every evening. As if I was the favourite family greyhound. (laughs) For I was. A middle distance runner. My persistent memory is of running. Running into those dark lanes of North Cork with me running and Pop, my father, cycling beside me in hat, raincoat and galoshes. And as would happen towards the end of the run... I would race on ahead as if I was just showing off, leaving Pop far behind. I took him for granted and he was so devoted to me. For 50 years he kept a diary, a diary I now have and I treasure. Those were the winter months And in spring, I see him now down at the end of the 440 yards homemade track in Mallow Town Park, standing there, calling out the interval times for my track sessions. 75, 2.30, and standing there like Eamon de Valera, (laughs) in hat, raincoat, and galoshes. Those were the spring months. And then in summer, I was away every summer Sunday, away at tracks all over Ireland, the Mardyke and Cork Band Tier, Santry. And because we had no car then, Pop would be at home. And he would get somewhat tense and think himself into a negative frame of mind so that when I came back, That night, he would say to me, not good so. And I would tease him and say, oh, you of little faith. (laughs) I won. Here are the medals. Show them to me, he would say, taking from them from me as if they were Fabergé eggs. And then I would download my day, my strategy, my tactics, and then he would write it all into his diary and then give it on to the local journalists, the corkman, the cork examiner. And the heading would read, Mallow Man, Monster Champion. God, he was a great man for the alliteration. But I didn't appreciate him. I had little regard for all this. And over the next three years, he had a special cabinet built to house the championship medals, the cups, the cutlery, a shrine so devoted. But 
I wanted something more. I wanted more than a trophy cabinet, than an All-Ireland track medal could give me. I wanted more than a training run every day could give me. And so in September 1967, I left to become a missionary priest. And Pop? What about Pop? He could get on, I thought. He would be okay. Many, many years later, I opened the diary in September the 21st, 1967, and I read, I must pull myself together. I cannot go on like this. I must pull myself together. I cannot go on like this. I am reading now that I have unwittingly broken his heart. Pop did die. In December 1980, he was 64, I was 35. By then, I had moved on again. I'd left the religious life. I was married. I was teaching in Dublin. But one thing remained the same. I still ran every day, but now in the Phoenix Park. He haunted, haunted my dreams after he died. The same dream over and over, me running and Pop cycling beside me in those North Cork lanes. But then, one night, the dream changed forever. Now in the dream, I am running the 15 acres in the Phoenix Park, and I am overtaken by a cyclist in hat, raincoat, and galoshes. He smiles as he passes, and I watch him fade away into the park's vast spaces. A fond farewell? Yes, a fond farewell. Pop, so devoted to me in life and in death. And yes, audience here tonight, it will come to us suddenly one night, one day, when we regard our parents' devotion to us and we will remember them. And then we will tell their story. Bobby Buckley there with a story about the power of memory and family. The thing that strikes me every time I go to the Dublin Story Slam is just how much of an impact stories can have. Not just on the audience, but on the storytellers too. I have a frazzled mind, but it's, it's 2017, we all do. This is the winner of the very first Dublin Story Grand Slam, Daisy McCarthy. A year ago, I came back to Ireland for a calmer existence. Um, and at this time, via an existential crisis out with the scope of this tale, I uh, started making uh, sequin capes. Um, Daisy isn't a storyteller by profession. She's a dentist. When she won her first story slam, she hadn't been on a stage since secondary school. Her story was about the small business she started making sequined capes in her free time that almost pushed her over the edge. So, so what transpired is that I was essentially running a one-woman sequined sweatshop. Um, uh, I, was, I was working and coming back and spending all hours essentially exploiting myself and the sewing machine <laughs> until, until midnight, all the while pretending to concerned um, friends and family that I was a daz- living the life of a dazzling young professional in the city, all, you know, drinks and brunch. Um... As well as being funny... Daisy's story also helped her explore her own mental health 
After living abroad for so many years, Daisy was worried that she'd never be able to settle back home. Ireland had changed so much since she'd emigrated. In fact, she had just moved back to Ireland when she discovered the Dublin Story Slam through a friend. Did the Dublin Story Slam help you through that first year of being back home when you started going with your friends? Without question. It was literally the highlight of my um, of my month at that, at that time. And I just really loved how it was um, personable that you suddenly, it was so exciting when like you, it feels like you're in a club um, and that you, even when you go there, you're like, oh my goodness, this person's going to tell a story. And so it felt really that it was a community but like a kind of a secret one um, that was really lovely and really important and I don't know quite how to describe what the magic of it the Dublin Story Slam here is in Dublin but it's it's just really wonderful. I got um, the I got some psoriasis uh, that's what happens it's my body's like you've lost your mind that's what's happening here and then I got the flu and then the flu went into my mind it was all negative and being like what the absolute F are you doing this is all your fault what do you think you're doing if you hadn't made this all these choices in your life you wouldn't be so unhappy right now and something had to give um, your story in the Grand Slam touched a lot on mental health on dealing with times of stress and darkness and feeling low and how you worked through that what how did you feel after sharing that with such a big group of people i didn't expect people to find it as funny i genuinely thought it was kind of a sad story um, and people some people were like my god that's gas um, but i do think it opened a dialogue of me saying it was hard i'm okay ish but actually this is about how i'm managing and they're like well we'll manage with you and actually it's something as small as that um, of just kind of building a community without over egging it do you know what I mean so the other thing I want to say because I think this is really important that it's not about you don't only get that if you get on the stage what I have learned about myself about people in Dublin about people's experiences from just watching and listening live to everyday people telling something about themselves is just incredible and so much for me more powerful um, dare I say than going to a play or theatre because it's raw but not in a kind of uh, not in a lurid way you know what I mean that it's people get to control what they say but every time I go I'm thinking about the stories for the following week You're listening to part two of a programme featuring highlights from the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019, recorded live at the Abbey Theatre in December. The Dublin Story Slam is an open mic storytelling night where audience members get up and share true, personal stories that are between four and seven minutes long. At the end of each Story Slam, a winner is chosen who then goes on to compete for the title of Grand Slam Champion. So, ladies and gentlemen, huge welcome to Becky Long. When I told that story on the the first night that I went to the Story Slam, it had only been a couple of months since he since he died. Becky Long first got up and told her winning story on stage about the great love of her life, Fergal Keys. Um, sometimes I think I went away with him when he died, and Fergal Keys did die, even though I still refused to believe it. I still refuse to believe that a life like his could narrow down to the point at which it ended. But this is not a story about death. This is a story about life, about the life he lived and the life he gave to me. And it's the story of my second chance. Fergal had cystic fibrosis and tragically died just the year before. Becky's story was a love letter to him and his legacy. I often say to him, Buddy, I can't believe you died. And yet there I was on stage telling a story about him because he wasn't there almost to tell it himself. And it was something that I wanted people to hear. I wanted them to hear how brave he was and that yes, he had died from cystic fibrosis, but that wasn't just him. I just wanted people to know how amazing he was. I'm still living my second chance because I love Fergal Keys. Then and now and always. After winning that night, 
Becky was invited back to take part in the Grand Slam. But coming up with a new story was a challenge at first. It's become that cliche thing of uh, a journey in that I didn't realise that the story sort of, it had to be about me. And yes, it's about Fergal as well, because he's so much of who I am now and who I was then. But um, in terms of preparing for it, it's, it's almost like... It's almost like gentle therapy because you get to ask yourself questions that maybe you wouldn't ask in everyday life and you get to kind of think, do people need to hear this or do people deserve to hear this? Is this a reason? Is there a reason why I'm saying these things? And if a story can help, if words can help and maybe make people feel a little bit less alone, then that's reason enough to tell a story, I think. You might want to grab a hanky for this one. If... One of you or anyone had told me that I would be standing on the Abbey stage telling a story about Fergal Keyes six days after the first anniversary of his death. Um, I would have laughed in that face or punched it, depending on my mood. Um, If you had told me that Fergal Keyes would die, I would have looked at you in disbelief because those words would not have made sense to me. And they still don't. And the fact that I'm standing here, even though part of me went with him when he died, I don't believe that either. Not really. So many things have happened since he died. Um, I even got a tattoo for him. It's a squirrel, because that's what I used to call him, my squirrel, because he hid food everywhere, in his pockets, in my pockets, in his bed, in my car, in his car. And he had that energy that squirrels have. His mind was as fast as a squirrel flying through the trees. And he used to call me his badger because of all my gray hair. (laughs) So yeah. Maybe that's the next tattoo, who knows. But he did die, and even now I force myself to say those words because he never shied away from the truth about life and death. Fergal Keyes lived and died, and there is a whole world in those five words, a universe that I can't even begin to describe. None of us can, because there is no end to Fergal Keyes, to his kindness and his wildness and his spirit. I climb to the top of Brayhead as many times a week as I can. I stand at the cross and I look out at the world and I say thank you to him for being here. I thank him for everything. I look at his mother, living her life every day, trying to move forward with her grief, trying to find ways to honour him and his brother and his sister, trying to find ways to believe that they're gone. And I say moving forward because nobody never moves on from grief. Nobody ever gets over the fact that the person they love the most is not here anymore. We carry them with us as far as we can in a day, because sometimes even just standing still is really, really hard. I lean on my mother every day, which is ironic because she's a foot shorter than me, at least. And I know that she just wants to fix everything. I know that she wants to make it better. But everyone knows that the only way to do that is to bring him back. And love is the most powerful force in the universe. And even love can't do that. But he's still here. Even though he's gone, he's still here. And the proof of that is the fact that I'm here tonight because as strong as everyone tells me I am, I'm not strong enough to stand here by myself. So that means that I'm not. That means that he's here. The first time he told me he had cystic fibrosis, I had known him for just under an hour. I remember that when he told me, I looked at him and I thanked him because I already knew how lucky I was. I knew that I was lucky to be sat across a table from him, watching his hands because they had magic in them, looking into his eyes and losing my place in the world. I thanked him because I knew already that he didn't say things lightly. I thanked him because I knew that it was important, important to him and that it would be important to me too. And for a moment, it was like the noise in the cafe receded and the light in the evening outside just dimmed and a voice in my head said into the quiet, there'll be a price for this. Someday you'll pay a price. And in that instant, I made the best decision of my life because looking at him and at the kindness in his handsome face and the love and the things that he said, I heard what that voice said and I knew it was true. And I told it that I would pay the price. No matter what what it was, I would pay the price. And when he told me that he loved me on one of those Summer days, it seems endless for all the right reasons, under the green and the gold of the trees outside his house. He was making a decision that I would only really begin to understand later when things were hard and the world seemed determined to exact that price day by day. When he told me he loved me, 
he knew that loss is already a part of love because to love someone, you have to acknowledge that one day you might lose them or that you might be lost. He knew that and he lived, he endured. He knew that loving somebody and needing them is no guarantee that they'll stay. So when he told me he loved me, he was opening himself up to whatever the world held for us. And for a while that was freedom and adventure. It was mountains and sea and kisses taken under the shadow of trees in the evening. It was full moons and car rides to nowhere and explorations on the bog and a sharing of dreams and memories that transcended time. That was the decision he made and he was making a decision to live and in so many ways that's the hardest decision you can make. I think of him walking with me in the rain in Curraclough Forest and we don't speak. The raindrops tremble in his dark hair and I watch his hands because I've always loved his hands. Part of me thinks that I'm in a dream because part of me was always caught in the wonder of the fact that he loved me. And I think to myself that maybe if we're lucky, what happens next is what should have been. Time, that doesn't pass because we've already learned the meaning of time passing. I daydream now. I swing towards the edge of the world and sometimes I think about letting go. I daydream of him and I make bargains. Bargains so specific, any right-minded devil would laugh me out of town. He sits across from me in a cafe sipping tea and teasing me for the darkness of my coffee. He drives us across the country because he is the best driver that's ever lived, but in my car because my car is better than his car. <laughs> we take walks together. We do the things that we'd always promised for each other. Those are my daydreams now. And I think that sometimes the love that he gave me stays. I know that it stays. When somebody dies, people say, I can't live without them. I've heard those words. I think I've said them myself. I can't live without you. And yet, here I am, standing on the Abbey stage, living. Because in its own way now, every day, every moment, every second without him is a decision to stay, a decision to live, a decision to endure the way he did that if I can find and make goodness with the life that I'm in without him now, that that will count as living. That's the decision I make because that's the, deci the decision he made. I choose to believe that the best is not ahead of me, the best is with me because he's with me. And with the best, I'll do my best. That's the decision I make every day until I see him again. Becky Long there with a very emotional story of love and loss. Despite being so raw, there was great power and strength in Becky's words that night. And like all of the stories, they connected with the audience, as did our last storyteller of the night. Um, one of the things that I, I enjoy uh, about the story slam is queuing up outside. Catherine Brophy is a storyteller and she is no stranger to the story slam. Because that's when people start talking to one another and saying like, are you going to tell a story? Are you going to tell a story? Oh no, I'd be afraid to. Or maybe are you? Oh great. Uh, so you start making connections before you get in. And then when you go in, it's the same thing. People are friendly. They chat to you. You go up to the bar to get a drink and people are all chatting about whether they're going to tell or they're going to listen or it's their first time. So it feels like you make friends there. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about it. Over the years, Catherine has told several stories on stage at the Story Slam. They've been about everything, from her childhood memories to her travels abroad. But the story that made her a finalist was her most personal and revealing one yet. This year I won the Story Slam in February, which of course involves the 14th of February and Valentine's Day and the theme was sex. So I told them about the first time I ever slept with anybody and I'm not going to say any more. <laughs> And then he phoned and suggested that for some weekend, I think it was the Whit weekend, that we should go away for the weekend. That meant a dirty weekend. <laughs> that meant sex. One of the things that I've found is that the audience is so 
warm and so accepting that it feels safe. And then I find I can tell some of these stories that I might have had doubts about beforehand. Ooh, I didn't quite know what to do. I was all of a dither. So I had a conversation with my friend, Mairead, because I knew Mairead had done it. (laughs) With the deep sea diver. Catherine is no stranger to storytelling, having taken part in the Moth Grand Slam back in 2015. Um, I did have the uh, opportunity of being on, on the Abbey once before for a Grand Slam and it just felt like I was home. I was thrilled to bits. I, the thing that struck me and that really astonished me was how when I went out to the front of the stage, I could feel this huge warmth coming from the audience and I felt like I was kind of like being enfolded in some sort of safety and that it was okay to tell the story and to take my time and to tell it the best way I could. And it was just a thrilling experience. I'm looking forward to it again. Coming up with a story inspired by the idea of a decision, it's not so difficult because in a sense, like any story, will have a decision. But I wanted to take something that would be kind of, would match the occasion and, and the place. So um, I decided to tell a story about how I became an adult. Ladies and gentlemen, I fear I'm going to lower the tone. (laughs) It was Christmas Eve and the lights were all shining and the shops were all full of glittery things and Grafton Street was empty because it was eight o'clock at night and everyone with any bit of sense had gone home or gone to a pub. (laughs) But I was standing at the corner of Johnson's Court looking down at uh, Clarendon Street Church trying to decide, will I go to confession or will I not? I was there, will I go? Do I believe the stuff? Do I not? Now, there's there's something you need to know about me. I wasn't just brought up Catholic. I was brought up super deluxe extra strength, gold star Catholic. (laughs) My mother was principal of the local school, head of the Ladies' Sodality, member of the Altar Society, and my father was the head of the Pioneer Total Aptons Association. (laughs) And he built the crib every Christmas for the church. And he was the man the parish priest came to when there were any problems in the parish. (laughs) My parents went to mass and communion every day. And we said the family rosary every day. And for my 10th birthday, they gave me the gift of a daily missile. You know the story with all the the masses in it. And um, the worst part about that was I was thrilled. So while all my contemporaries just gave up religion without a thought, I had to have a dark night of the soul. So here I was in Grafton Street in my late 20s going, do I believe in God, do I not? Is confession right? Will I go? Will I go? And eventually I decided, ah, stuff it, I'll go. It'll do me no harm and it might do me some good. So the church was quite dim and there was just a little sanctuary lamp and there was one light over the one confessional that was open for business. And I knelt down to to try and decide what my sins were. And mostly... (laughs) Mostly my sins were I didn't go to Mass on Sunday for months on end. And I told lies to my parents about going to Mass. (laughs) So I went into the confessional and I knelt down, it was pitch black. Slide went over and I did the bless me father for I have sinned and told him whatever it was to be told. And when I was finished, he said to me, and what about the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery, so sex. Now, this was one of the commandments I had difficulty with because in the Catholic sort of thing, it covers everything from thinking about sex to fellas in gimp masks. (laughs) 
and everything up, down, sideways, legal and illegal. <laughs> but the worst part of it was that I had nothing to confess. Well, maybe the occasional wrestle in the back of a taxi, but you know. So I said that I didn't think that anything I had done against the Sixth Commandment would have been a mortal sin. And he turned to me and he said, all sins against the Sixth Commandment are mortal sins. Now, there's something else you need to know about me. I was educated by the Dominicans. And they didn't have that much interest in the leaving cert, but they had great interest in preparing us for the time when we left school, when we would be assassinated by Protestants, communists, and atheists, <laughs> who would try and divert us from our Catholic faith. So not only did we have catechism and church history, we had moral philosophy, ethics, apologetics. So I knew everything there was to be known. And I didn't want this priest to think I was some sort of ignorant gobdoll. So I said, but a mortal sin needs three conditions. Full, uh, grievous matter, full knowledge, and full consent. Well, he said, how dare you, he said. How dare you argue with me, you a mere chit of a girl, and I a priest of God. I refuse to give you absolution. Get out of my confessional. Out, out, out. And he slammed the slide over. Well, I was totally taken aback. And I sat outside thinking, like, oh, that, 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 how can you be refused absolution because you know your stuff? I mean, this is... <laughs> so... I decided I, I really I should write a letter to somebody and the best person to write to was the Pope. And I was thinking... <laughs> so I thought, dear Pope. And then I realised, wait, now hang on, it's highly unlikely that the letter will get to the Pope. I should write to the Bishop. Dear Bishop. And then I remembered something from my good Catholic education, that bishops don't have any authority over heads of orders. I, something like that, I wasn't too sure. And Clarendon's... Clarendon Street Church belongs to an order. So I said, I know what I'll do. I'll go to the head of the order. So I marched out of the church. I went round to the door. I rang the bell. I knocked at the door and I waited. And I heard nothing for a good while. So I rang the bell again, knocked on the door again. And then I heard these footsteps coming along. And suddenly it dawned on me, what do I do if the head of the order <laughs> is the same guy I've just been to confession to? So I lost my nerve and I turned and went, ran away, went home. But I didn't live in the kind of family where you could say, oh, and by the way, I was refused absolution. <laughs> it would never have happened in our house. So I didn't actually tell anybody. And I was actually, despite all my concerns and questions about religion, I was quite upset by this. I didn't tell the family, I didn't tell anyone. And I was kind of going around like, I mean, should I give up religion because some sexist bastard has, you know, yeah. Or oh, what should I do? And this was going on and on all during the week. And exactly a week later, on New Year's Eve, I was driving through the Phoenix Park. I was coming out at the Bagot Street, or the Bagot Road uh, gate, and that involves a rather tricky S-bend. And I came round the S, and literally, as I went through the gates, I had this epiphany. And I suddenly thought, I'm an intelligent well-educated woman. I know right from wrong. I can make my own decisions. I can let all of the religious stuff just go. And it was like the chains had fallen off. And as I rounded the last bit, I thought, this is the first day that I am a really fully grown adult. Thank you. Brophy there, our final storyteller of the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019. Colm and Julian, you've been working together on the Dublin Story Slam since it all began in 2017. Colm, you're the host. Julian, you're the producer. 
what an exciting Grand Slam it was. What did you both make of all the stories that were told? Uh, I was I was incredibly proud of all the storytellers who told a story at this year's Grand Slam because I think this year we've been working very closely with each of the storytellers and helping them kind of not just find their story but you know refine it and, and focus it and make it as, as powerful as it can be and everybody 100% went along with us on that journey you know because when they all got onto that stage I think the confidence um, that they had in sharing the stories came from like they really knew what they were talking about they, they knew what the story meant to them and each story meant something really significant to each storyteller Colin what was it like hosting this year's Grand Slam? Well, first of all, visually, just what a beautiful stage to have been on. And I'm still, I can still picture it in my mind. The set consists largely of a, a beautifully decorated sitting room. So despite the fact there was 500 people there, it did feel lovely and intimate. And also the mood of the audience was really nice. They were excited, but at the same time, very welcoming for the storytellers that were up there. And as regards the stories themselves, what I love about those stories is they best exemplified the kind of stories we hear at the Story Slam. The darkness, the light, the pathos, the bathos, the drama, the tension. And also, they don't get neatly wrapped up at the end. That is kind of the way human life is. You know, you get certain bits of closure, other open questions. It's a continuum. But just as a lovely snapshot of a particular moment in time or a place, that's, I think that's what the audience respond to because... The audience are not looking at going, looking at people up on stage going, geez, I could never do that. They're going, you know, something a bit like that happened to me, actually. And that's why last night was really special for me, the, the very humanity of all the stories. So, at the end of each story, teams of judges made up of last year's Grand Slam finalists awarded a score to each storyteller. All of the storytellers were invited back on stage... Andrea, Mark, Michael, Sinead, Mary-Kate, Bobby, Becky and Catherine. What a night they have given us, ladies and gentlemen. I'll stand right back out of the way, these people here. The scores were tallied up and the winner was announced. But I'll let the host, Mr. Colm O'Regan, reveal who won. Special certificates to our winner tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Catherine Brophy. And Catherine's uh, winning story, I think, was just uh, it was the the the, the cherry on, on top because all the stories were fantastic. Like they were all definitely personal bests of, of each story that they had kind of rehearsed beforehand. Um, but it was just it was great to see uh, Catherine win on the night. I think a very a very deserving winner. Winning a Grand Slam is an incredible feeling. A few days after it, Catherine was still reeling from her big win. Um, I suppose the first thing is when I came out on stage, I was really aware of this incredibly warm like acceptance or something from the audience. And like the audience really made it for me because once I got the first laugh, I know I have them. I have them now. And after that, then once you get that permission or something, it's like you can fly. And I knew I was doing it, I was telling it better than I told it before. And I felt kind of quite free in it and I felt I could, you know, make stuff up if I wanted on the way. And the laughs were coming and the laughs were getting better and it's going, I just felt like I was flying. It was thrilling, thrilling. When I was down as the winner, I was sort of, didn't, I sort of really, I, I, I didn't know what to be saying. I just kind of felt a bit dumbstruck. Really. But of course I was thrilled. Thrilled to bits, you know. It was another chance to get out and say hello to that fabulous audience. It was great. <laughs> Thank you from myself because, Jesus, I love an audience. <laughs> Catherine Brophy there, the winner of the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019. You have been listening to highlights of the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019. If you have been inspired by any of the stories you've heard over this two-part programme, consider sharing a story yourself. Visit the DublinStorySlam.com and find out how to sign up to share your story. Who knows, it might be you who's up there on stage next year. My name is Kerry Ward. Thanks for listening.
The Dublin Story Grand Slam Radio Special was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.